What do you think of when you hear the words The Rock? I think of well, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, first of all. I'm not sure if that's, if that's right. I'm picturing Dwayne The Rock Johnson uh, talking with my uncle who interviews people about movies, and he said he was the sweetest human being he's ever met in his life. Dwayne? Dwayne The Rock. You're on a first name basis with him? No. What do you think of when you hear the words The Rock? String? I don't know. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> That's a good answer. It's a very good answer. The first thing that I thought of when you said the rock is classic rock. And I have a I have a sour taste associated with that because my ex-girlfriend loved she loved classic rock. And she was an extraordinary milk toast. Geologist? Rock, what would you say? Celebrity. Oh, good one, good one. Playing the rock, Oh, I thought of an actual rock. Well, tell us about the rock, tell us about the rock. About the rock itself? Yeah, or whatever rock you pictured. Just like the rock, like the size of my hand, and it's like gray and smooth and pretty. I like rocks. Oh, I love rocks. Have you guys heard of the Lawrence Rock? No. No, no I have not. Is this some kind of a uh, music festival? I think I read about it in the Laurentian. Was it the boulder that was stolen? The rock is like such a natural like power and beautiful thing. It's eternal. That's the that's the secret rock, but wasn't that like painted or whatever? When I was applying to different colleges, I felt like every college had a rock where people like would get proposed to at their like first kiss with their significant other, people would like paint it, and so I was kind of surprised that Lawrence didn't have one. It exists? How come so many people here don't know about that anymore? What happened to them? Been missing since 1998. Wait, it's missing? Is that what you said? Yes. It was a joke. Is it missing? Is it like someone didn't took, took it? it? That's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Are people investigating? Yes. Yes. These people. These, these people. <laughs> 121 years ago, a 4,700 pound granite boulder arrived on the Lawrence University campus in Appleton, Wisconsin. It was presented as a graduation gift from the class of 1895. In its long history on campus, the boulder became an unofficial mascot for the university. It quickly became custom to paint the boulder, and later on, to steal it. Students and faculty referred to it as The Rock. That's ROCK, in all caps. Ask an older alum about The Rock, and their face will light up with recognition. Ask a current student, and, well, you'll probably end up in a conversation about a wrestler-turned-actor. That's because, in the fall of 1998, the Lawrence University Rock disappeared overnight. It's been 18 years since then. Most of campus has forgotten. But we haven't. A two-ton piece of Laurentian history is missing. And we're trying to find it. I'm John Hanrahan. I'm Sarah Axtell. And this is No No Stone Stone Unturned. I don't remember the first time I heard about The Rock, but I do remember the first time I saw a photo of it. I'd stumbled across a sepia-toned photo posted online. The Rock sits under a shady tree. A beam of sunlight highlights the deep-cut inscription reading Class of 95. It's a sizable granite boulder, and noticeably lopsided. I remember thinking, this thing is what alumni miss so much? We realized that they don't just miss the boulder itself. They weren't ever just moving a rock. They were moving the rock. 
as members of a broader campus community had done since the 19th century. They miss being a part of something both mischievous and enormous, because that's what college is all about. As I told former residence hall director Sarah Van Steenbergen, the idea for this radio show came about because... We were both into the podcast Serial, mm-hmm. and we're both into weird Laurentian history, and we decided that the best way to mesh those two ideas would to be to create a podcast radio show going as in-depth as possible into the mystery of The Rock. In the digital archives, we found so much more than just common knowledge about The Rock. We found sub-stories within The Rock's history. There are so many little narratives that are so funny. We don't have much experience investigating mysteries, especially not in podcast form, but we were so intrigued by The Rock's stories that we had to find a way to share them. We also wanted to pave the way for current and future Laurentians to connect to the past, and maybe even create their own stories. When we started out, we were willing to report on any option if it could get us to that point. It could be buried. It could be somewhere hidden on the Lawrence campus. It could be in someone's backyard hundreds of miles away. It could be in the Fox River. Actually, when we first spoke about The Rock, we were willing to, quote, get really outlandish and talk to people like a Fox River expert or something. I even asked my dad if he knew anything about it. He went to Lawrence his freshman year of college in 1971. Funnily enough, The Rock spent that year, and many years prior and afterwards, buried behind his dormitory. John Axtell is of no use. We can honestly say that we don't know how this show will end. At this point, we've been chasing The Rock for over a year. But it's been rolling for over a hundred. A quick note. The Rock's weight has been estimated at anywhere between two and four tons by different sources. We're choosing to stick with 4,700 pounds, the figure first quoted by the class of 1895. Let's take things back to the very beginning. How did that two-ton granite pebble find its way to our sleepy northeastern Wisconsin campus? Well, Sarah, your initial understanding of the situation was a little simplistic. I mean, if I, were to, if I were to say it from memory, it would be disjointed, but like they found it in, I think, 1895 while on a hiking trip with geology. And one of those crazy young geologists said, that's a nice boulder. Put that baby on a freight train. Okay, yeah. Since then, we've been able to piece together a clearer origin story for the rock. We were actually able to get pretty close to the source. Well, the rock was because of my grandfather, Dexter Putnam Nicholson. At first, you, when you first read about the rock, you think it was only the students. Mm-hmm. But, it, but there are other places where it was said that he was the one that suggested that they, and he arranged to have a flatbed for the rock to come on, to be carried, to get to campus, because it was not impossible for them to carry it. And so he yeah. arranged for that so that I could come, and that was apparently his idea to do that. That's Dorothy Bobelin, a member of the class of 51, in a 2006 interview with Lawrence archivist Julius Stringfellow. Going deeper, Sarah and I found a letter written by the Reverend A. Arthur Bennett of the class of 1895. One day in the spring of 1895, Professor Nicholson took the senior class on a geological expedition. They went by train and bicycle over to New London and visited that high bluff east of the city, the one that stands out on the plain like a lump of loaf sugar on a platter. In riding out from the city to the bluff, this four-ton granite pebble was noticed lying at the side of the road. 
Several of the class thought it would be a fine memorial of the occasion if it could be transferred to the campus. A dray was secured and with considerable help the stone was brought to the city and placed on a flat car that it might be shipped to Appleton. The class immediately made known their desire to place the rock on the campus, and Doc Sammy gave his gracious consent. Note that Doc Sammy is President Samuel Plants, the seventh president of Lawrence University. Reverend Bennett called it a fine memorial. A rock. Really? Professor Nicholson seems like a pretty smart guy, but what possessed him to find a boulder and plunk it down on campus rather than a sundial or obelisk or some other more grandiose monolith? The class of 95 desire not to be forgotten. And so we have raised this boulder with the inscription which you see upon it. These are the words of F.E. Bochip, who delivered the class of 1895 oration and dedication of the rock. Few are the men who desire to be forgotten. Exceptional the circumstances under which they gladly resign their actions to oblivion. There is that in the nature of man which causes him to desire to be remembered, which makes him strive constantly to write his name high on the pillars of fame, even though he knows the glory be but of short duration. So this was bigger than just plunking it down. Oh yeah. My favorite part of the story is how the rock was a direct response to the gift of the preceding class of 94. The class of 94 planted the woodbine, alias the ivy. It died. A tombstone was erected to mark its narrow grave, but some vagrant stole the tombstone, and now nothing but the narrow mound remains to commemorate the class of 94. (laughs) We determined to raise to ourselves a more enduring monument. We thought long and deliberated well, and finally decided upon the granite boulder. The unveiling of the stone was an event of importance, at least to the 95ers. We gathered around our pebble in all our senior dignity, sang our dedicatory ode, and listened to some very fine oratory. From that day to this, the stone had served as common property for all classes. It was like a giant screw you to the preceding class. Wasn't it also a big, hey, remember us, to all future classes? You're right. I guess the need to be remembered is the driving force behind the rock, and all the antics surrounding it. Those antics are what ended the rock's short tenure as an untouchable monument. The rock hadn't been on campus for long when an incident occurred, as detailed by Reverend Bennett in his letter. We seniors were taking a written quiz under Dr. Plants. One of the boys asked the doctor if he could promise us our degrees provided we pass satisfactorily. Oh, said the doctor as he shook with laughter, your degree is out on your stone. Imagine, if you can, our indignation when we, after finishing the quiz, visited the stone. Some miscreant had puttied up with clay the first two letters of class, and had added the letters E-S. But we forgave them. They didn't know any better. For the next hundred years, vandalism in this vein became synonymous with the Rock's existence on campus. A. Arthur Bennett found the practice to be trite and effeminate. Though that didn't stop anyone. Following the first gaffe with the asses of 95, it became common practice to paint the rock. Though perhaps first done as a prank, painting the rock became a way for students to announce news or mark their territory. And then it disappeared. You say that like it happened once. Okay, it disappeared many times. At some point, we're not exactly sure when, simply painting the boulder wasn't enough to satisfy the mischievous minds of Laurentian's past. They needed something more. 
So they started to steal it. And remember, this thing was at least two tons. Right. Though sometimes heavy machinery was called in, most of the time the rock was moved with pure brute strength. Each story is more outlandish than the next. Like that time they dumped it in the Fox River. Or when they buried it behind Plants Hall. Or when some girls from Sage Hall fought tooth and nail to hang on to it in the 40s. Oh, right, and then when they- Let's not get ahead of ourselves. We've got a lot to cover. Going on Laurentian articles in Campus Gossip alone, John and I began to gather theories about what could have happened to the rock. We heard speculation that it could be in the Fox River, or under a different parking lot, or even buried under the turf of the Bontable, Lawrence University's football field. We had our own suspicions as well. From what we knew, the rock had disappeared the fall of 1998, amidst rising tensions between the Phi Delta Theta and Delta Tau Delta fraternities. For a few years prior, the rock had been cemented in front of the Fidel's house, on the Alton Street side, facing away from the quad. Before fall term began in 1998, a group of Delts learned that what was considered the Fidel rock actually belonged to the university as a whole. They tore the rock from the concrete and moved it to their house's front lawn. After the term began, the Fidel's reclaimed the rock, moving it across the quad without the aid of machinery. They surrounded the rock with a living room's worth of furniture, including a Nintendo 64 and a TV. There... On the quad, the Fidelts stood guard day and night. It had become an unofficial rule that wherever the rock was at midnight the Friday of homecoming, that was where it would stay for the rest of the year. Things came to a head that Friday, October 16th. Shortly after 5 p.m., a front-end loader, hired out by the Delts, rumbled its way onto the quad. Several Fidelts piled themselves around the rock. The area was swarmed by members of both fraternities, campus security, and administration. The delts began to inch the machine forward. At this point, the Appleton Post Crescent quotes former Greek advisor Tim Gibson shouting over the roar of the engine, This is America. You are moving these men against their will. This is just a rock. You're crossing the line. Nancy Truesdale, then the dean of students and now the vice president of student affairs, quickly arrived on the scene thereafter. I can't in my good conscience let you do this, she told the assembled fraternity members. Somebody is going to get hurt. The front-end loader was shut down, and members of the warring fraternities promised to find compromise on the future of the rock. Shortly after, it disappeared for good. Was it the Delts or Phi Delts who took it, trying to emerge from the conflict as clear winners? Or did the university do away with it out of concern for overzealous frat boys with access to heavy machinery? There are also rumors of rival colleges getting involved in the past. Could the on-campus kerfuffle have drawn the interest of Ripon College or Fox Valley Tech? To complicate matters even more, maybe... The National Phi Delta Theta Organization revoked the Lawrence Phi Delta Charter in 2010. By then, the chapter had shrunk to eight members who did not meet national GPA requirements. So if Phi Delta did steal the rock in 1998, but lost their charter 12 years later, what did that mean for us? Was our boulder stuck in fraternity limbo? With our theories in mind, we scheduled our first interview with Lawrence University archivist Aaron Dix. On a sunny May morning, Sarah and I walked into the imposing, brutalist Sealy G. Mudd Library and made our way to the windowless archive floor. Assortment of articles about the rock over time, a bunch from the Laurentian and the local newspaper, the Post Crescent. um, Aaron gave us a thin file folder containing newspaper clippings and photographs of the rock. It also included a hand-typed copy of A. Arthur Bennett's letter and the 1895 dedication speech. We poured over the materials yeah, available. Something, something to big. One up the ivy tombstone. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, wait, so. It was clear these were the primary documents used by our reporter forebearers. 
Though we didn't find any new leads in the folder, we were still hopeful that Erin herself would have exclusive information for us. So what do you personally know about The Rock? People ask questions about The Rock uh, fairly often here because many alumni at Lawrence remember this and wonder where it is now. And so, you know, I have a basic level of awareness of The Rock. What is your opinion of this project? Like, what is the, the possibility of actually locating The Rock? Man, I, I don't know. I, you know, people ask about this, like I said, sort of every so often. Um, and I always have to just say, I don't really know. But as far as I know, I'm not aware of anyone who's like really mounted a serious campaign to try and find it. So uh, if you guys are the first to really do that and really put in some effort, you know, uh, you might be able to find it. Yeah, it's a, an ambitious project. Erin <laughs> uh, knew about as much as we did. Well, We felt encouraged by Erin's kind words, but encouragement alone doesn't solve mysteries. Leads do. Do you have any opinions on potential leads we could talk to? I don't know. I, I had been talking with Sarah Van Steenbergen. Sarah Van Steenbergen, campus life employee and live-in hall director of Hyatt Hall, the upperclassman residence hall. And she seemed like maybe she had some leads. Hmm. She was very interested in all of this. Um, well, so I should ask her. I, I can't remember exactly what what her leads were, but she was very into it, so... Because she went to Ripon. Yeah, oh. And they had it for at least a few years in the oh. 50s. okay. Despite her professional affiliation with Lawrence, could she be a double agent for Ripon College, our rival school and her alma mater? John and I had to know more. On May 15th, Sarah and I visited Sarah Van Steenbergen. On top of being a residence hall director, at that time she was also the Campus Life Programs Coordinator. Early on, on the list of things that I was going to pay attention to this year, was sort of bringing some new institutional energy into some of those historical traditions that are absolutely a part of Lawrence, but maybe not at the forefront of everybody's awareness of Lawrence. I was talking to Erin Dix. And she said, well, there's always The Rock, kind of dubiously. Uh, and I said, mm, like, Dwayne Johnson? And I came back here and I talked to Kurt a little bit about his recollection of it. That's Kurt Lauderdale, dean of students and member of the class of 2001. He was there on campus when The Rock disappeared in 1998. What he said by the end of that conversation, yeah, if you find The Rock, you can just go home. Like, you can, you're, you're done. You've satisfied the requirement for the year. Uh, I started poking around, figuring out if I could find it. I knew of a large yellow rock about 15 miles that way in Greenville. I got very excited. I came back to Kurt and I was like, I think I found the rock. And he said he knew of another staff member at Lawrence who lives out in the area I was in when I saw this rock. So he told me to go to that staff member. She confirmed that it's part of the Lewis and Clark trail marker, not the rock. She is Jody Bonikowski, who works in the ID office. And the ID office is right outside of campus safety director John Meyer's office. Campus safety is the official name of Lawrence's security department. John overheard me and Jody talking about the rock that I thought was the rock, but is not the rock. And he came out of his office and he said, you should talk to Corey Kruger. And I said, what? And he, he said, talk to Corey Krieger. 
He is an alum roughly of the class of... 1995. Corey was the president of Phi Delta Theta in his time here. And after he graduated, he moved locally and was an assistant football coach. I'm just going to read part of the email to you because it's, it's the best. Roughly 14 years ago when I was coaching at LU, my wife and I awoke one morning to find the rock in my side yard. A few minutes later, a group of football players apologetically knocked on my door and explained that they needed to stash the rock for a night. I told them I wanted no part of it as an employee, and as those boys who put it in my yard clearly had taken it from them, they took it back, and they took it to parts unknown. I was made an accomplice unknowingly. I have no clue where they took it. I know that they had a huge flatbed come and get it from my house, and from there, I don't know. There were rumors that one of the boys was from a local farm and that that is where it went. Guessing that is where it sits, wherever that is. I am thinking it was guys who were class of 98 or 99 from the Phi Delta Theta group. And then he suggests that I look at membership of Phi Delta from 98 to 2000 uh, and maybe email them. What I did from that was take this email to Kurt Lauderdale. He said... Gosh, I think Josh Chudikoff, who is the associate principal of Kakana High School and married to Aaron Chudikoff, who works in development, was a Laurentian Phi Delta of the class of 99. So I emailed Josh, and his email is much shorter and says, I fondly recall camping out in the quad around the rock. We moved out the equivalent of a living room, complete with televisions and a Nintendo 64 to stand vigil around it. Alas, the rock eventually disappeared, and I do not recall where it went next. I'm pretty sure some of the betas or sigeps were involved. Beta is shorthand for the fraternity Beta Theta Pi, and sigep is shorthand for the fraternity Sigma Phi Epsilon. In 1998, all of the fraternities we've mentioned had houses on the quad. So that throws it off just a little bit, because Corey's, Corey's assumption, which seems much more in-depth and detailed, was that Phi Delts were responsible for it, throw in the betas and the sigeps in there is an interesting insert. What do you know about the rock? Uh, well, first of all, it's interesting that they bring up betas and sigups because yeah. in the entire end of the history of the rock, it's all about the delts and yep. the phi delts. Yep. It's all about those two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's so confusing. And, and I, and I, I can't tell if that's just like the betas and the sigups were really sneaky and that's how they, they made this happen without their names getting associated or if Josh knows more than he's letting on and, and he's if he's throwing to... off the trail. And like as a staff member, I don't know how appropriate it is for me to make those kinds of assumptions and, and, and leaps. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm inclined to believe that after this long, they would want to bury the hatchet and maybe return the rock at some point, like if we were to contact them, I don't know how strong allegiances can remain. It's fascinating to me that that the allegiance piece is seemingly as strong as it is, and certainly Greek allegiance and, and fraternal bond doesn't go away even if your organization does, and that's true of all sorts of different things. I would start by looking at membership of Phi Delta Theta graduating classes 98 to 2000. We have a, a lot of names from a post-custom article about the 
final disappearance of the rock. Okay. Uh, and it's all just Fidelts and Delts. Eric Benedict, who was the vice president at the time. Guy Super. <laughs> Which is the best name ever. Who <laughs> was a Delt member. And Jeff Ramsey, also a Fidelt member, who is quoted in the article. I just remembered this. After I told John Meyer, head of campus safety, that I emailed Corey Berger, he and I just spoke a little bit more. And I was like, why did you know to tell me that? And he said, well, Corey was an athlete and John's a basketball coach here. And according to John, like what, just one more potential hypothesis theory, apparently John thinks it's on a farm somewhere in Chilton. Chilton is a small town 40 minutes southeast of Appleton. If any of those guys live in Chilton, that might be a, a good direction to move forward in. It may have eroded by now, but I think the main way to identify the rock is that it still has class of 1895 carved into it. Shut the front door. It's like very deeply carved. Yeah. And it shows through paint and everything. So that's how you would know if that giant yellow rock. Uh, See, and I've never gotten up the nerve to get out of my car and trespass. <laughs> yeah. It'll have very visibly class of 95 carved 1895? Yeah. yeah. With other class numbers as well. Right, 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 right. Yeah. But that's a piece of history right yeah. there is what that is. That's exactly right. It's an artifact. A monument. Also just like a giant chunk of granite. A giant chunk of granite with a strange knack for evaporating into thin air. Next week on No Stone Unturned, we follow Sarah's suggestion. We dive into the fraternity rabbit hole. We talk to fraternity alumni, young-ish. When I started at Lawrence, I started in 96. And old. That was 60 years ago, and uh, the good news is, John, I haven't changed a lot in 60 years. <laughs> and we get a step closer to maybe, someday, finding the rock. No Stone Unturned is produced by Sarah Axtell and me, John Hanrahan. Ridley Tankersley wrote and performed the original score for this episode. Willa Johnson designed our logo. We received production assistance from Nathan Lawrence. Kip Hathaway performed the 1895 class oration by F.E. Bochip, and Madeline Scanlon performed A. Arthur Bennett's letter. The Dorothy Bobelin interview was used with permission of the Lawrence University Archives. Special thanks to Layla Horesh. Special thanks also to Aaron Dix. Land on a street, have you or have you not dated a person you would qualify as milk toast? Oh, definitely. But he was into trains. That's not a but, that's an and. <laughs> <laughs>